1: Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 10.
0: The sacrifice of Jesus was a voluntary sacrifice. It came with obedience. The Old Testament sacrifices are contrasted with obedience. They were required by the law, and the animals didn't volunteer. You see, The animals did not obey, but Jesus did. And they did not go to the death as an act of personal obedience on their own. That sounds funny to say, but the point he's making is the contrast here. And uh, so these sacrifices didn't please God. They were just his way of getting people to understand what was coming. No obedience was involved in part of animals. They were offered entirely on the basis of the law of Moses. And when the Messiah, God the Son, said to God the Father, Lo, I am come to do your will, he stated that he was coming willingly and obedient to be what? What was he coming for? To be that final sacrifice. That's again my my. I try to emphasize perhaps too often, but uh, um, Mel Gibson's book, uh, movie I should say, the, the Passion, that uh, has it, is, uh, it has two deficiencies, sp- uh, sp- conspicuous ones. One is he it, it implies that the crucifixion was a tragedy. No, it was an achievement. Jesus came to do that, and to be the final sacrifice for sin. And the second thing, of course, the book, the book keeps in the, the movie fails to do is to present who Jesus Christ really is. And I'm not sure how he would have done that, but the point is that's missing. and That's the whole point of the whole thing, actually. Anyway, verse 9. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. What's he, taking, what's he doing away with? The law. The first covenant. Yes, exactly right. To establish the second. And again, this is quoted from Psalm 40, verse 8. And his death, the sacrifice of the Mosaic Covenant, were taken away. And the second was brought in, the one sacrifice upon which the new covenant is established. That's where we get the New Testament gets its name. It's from this whole issue. He take away the first that he may establish the second. And again, here is another clear statement of something that's funny. You can't get this across. So many people, as Christians, they get enamored with the Old Testament. And that's healthy. That's good. And they start studying the Jewish feast days and try to understand what they all mean. And that's wonderful and and, and fruitful and, and worth doing. But it's interesting how often, from all of that, they start finding themselves trying to keep the Torah, getting back under the law. And to do that means they don't understand the purpose and accomplishments of Christ. And it's disturbing to realize that to even consider that is, uh, is an undoing of what Christ came to undo, or in other words, okay, double undoing there, I'm not sure, that's, uh, that's in the Greek, no, I'm kidding, okay, <laughs> verse 10, by the which we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, it's interesting, in the Greek text, the author uses a perfect participle with a finite verb, what does that mean? That emphasizes the believers are in a permanent, continuous state of sanctification, Your justification is once and for all, but you are then in a permanent state of sanctification, some making more progress than others. They've been made permanently holy in the sight of God that is declared justified. Okay? It's His blood that saves them and sanctifies them. Why? Because the offering up of the body of Jesus was once and for all. That's why justification is once and for all. For all of you, it's past tense. It's been done. We'll talk more about sanctification as all this unfolds here. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering sometimes, oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. They do this daily, every day, every year, etc. This time the focus isn't on Yom Kippur once a year. It's on the the daily ritual that they do. Oftentimes, the same sacrifice, over and over, every day, year after year. The emphasis of the writer here is on repetition. That's one reason I haven't taking you down through a review of all the different offerings. Because the whole point is they're all behind us. They're all done. And uh, the, the, they stand, the Levitical priests stand day by day. There's no place to sit, the, as we saw in the, in the tabernacle. And that's, that, that, mean, that standing means their unfinished state of their work. They're never done. The same sacrifice, no matter how many times they're offered, could never take away sins. They could only cover it. But this man, Jesus Christ... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The Levitical priests never sat down. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Key point. He offered one sacrifice. Jesus is the opposite of the Levitical uh, priests. He's the one in contrast to the many of the Levitical priests. And by the way, the Greek word here is the aorist. And emphasized emphasizes it's once and for all offering in contrast to the repeated offerings. of the, Even the grammar um, uh, emphasizes this. His work, Jesus Christ's work, is effective forever. That means He didn't just die all the sins up to the cross. He died all the sins in advance. For all of them, forever. And because He's finished with His work, He's now seated where? On His throne in heaven, right? No, good for you. Where is He seated? By the right hand of the Father. But He's seated is the point the guy's making here. He's no longer standing like the vehicle. He can sit down because His work is finished. He's going to hammer that away through you. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. See, his present position is that he's now in heaven. He's not, that's where he is, that's where Jesus is right now. We're going to visit Israel. We'll see the empty tomb. Is he there? No, he's in heaven now. Henceforth, expecting, that's waiting, until all his enemies are made the footstool under his feet in the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. Remember the whole 110 thing we went over several times. Okay. The reason Jesus can sit and wait for his enemies to become his footstool is because his work is finished. He's sitting and waiting for the right time. The Father will say, go get him. That's where he can until his enemies make his footstool. Seven contrasts to give you a summary of the last four verses. Many priests, in contrast to one priest, they are standing, he sat down, they had to sacrifice daily, but he sacrificed on one single day. They sacrificed many times. He sacrificed only once. They had to offer many sacrifices, but he had to offer only one sacrifice. They accomplished a temporary atonement, but he a permanent eternal one. And their sacrifice only covered sins, but his sacrifice actually took them away. And some of these sounds like repetitions. They're not really. The precision of this analysis, I'm indebted to Arnold Fuchtenbaum. Who else would be that picky Ewan? But being a Hebrew specialist, I lean on him heavily for this in in, in these areas. Very sharp. Very, very sharp analyst. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hath perfected forever. Ooh, that's a wonderful sound. There's a verse that's good for showing the contrast between position and practice. See, earlier he dealt with the positional sanctification, justification that is. They're not perfect because of what they really are, but because of what they are in Christ. If you have accepted Christ, your passport to heaven is stamped, admitted. There's a work still going on, however, called practical sanctification. The Holy Spirit is within believers, slowly conforming them to be more and more to the image of God. Because your justification doesn't change you, it just allows you entrance to heaven when the time comes. That's done. He did it. In the meantime, you should be growing day by day, inch by inch, whatever, towards spiritual maturity. And that's what this epistle is really hammering about here. There's another concept here that's worth mentioning in this whole justification thing, and that's the certificate of debt. There's another model hinted here that I wanted to just touch on so we're not blind to this. In the old ways, in the Roman Empire and elsewhere, there was an acknowledgment of debt for sin. And the debt's not paid by sacrifices each year as Yom Kippur are made for their sins, but only extends the penalty for another year. That's what Yom Kippur did. There's another model hinted here, and that's the certificate of debt. And Paul speaks of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, or putting phrasing it another way, the certificate of debt was against us. We use the expression ourselves that he owes a debt to society. When someone creates a criminal act, it's as if he owes a debt to society. In those days, they actually document when you were in court and got... Deemed guilty, you had a certificate debt that you had to have paid, an actual document. And it was a, it was a penal or legal or criminal term. And we use the same terminology today. The guy was his debt. What the jailer would do, he would keep the certificate of debt. And as you earned your sentence, if you were sentenced for five years, each year he would sign off a year until you did the five years. If along the way you escaped what was unpaid, the jailer had to pay. That gave him diligence. He tried. That's why that jailer, remember when Paul, it was open, he thought they'd all escaped, he was ready to kill himself? He said, don't do that, we're all here. Yeah, that blew him away. They didn't leave. They were singing songs. And the jailer came to Christ. You know the story in but okay. Now, if the criminal escaped, as I say, the jailer was then responsible. When the, if he finished out his, if the debt was finally paid, it would be stamped or written to telesty. It is finished. Paid in full is the equivalent term. And he would give that to you. And you then had that as proof that you would paid your debt to society. That was their approach to avoiding what we call double jeopardy today. And so, that's why Paul speaks of our certificate of debt having been paid for us by Christ. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Christ's death paid for that. And he did it in full. On the cross, his last words on the cross were, Tetelestai, paid in full, which in the King James, of course, it's translated, it is finished. And so, our paid in full debt is discussed here because that debt is acknowledged and rolled. Their debt, in the analytical thing, is, is rolled over each year. Ours is paid once and for all. How precious that is. So let's continue in verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember How long? No more. He's a quoting, if you recognize the quote, is from Jeremiah, the New Covenant passage. Jeremiah 31 31. It's easy to remember. 31 is the number of God in the Hebrew, right? L. Jer- Jeremiah 31 31 is the, is the New Covenant verse, just a way to remember that. Holy Ghost is a witness to us. And, and 31, it's all the way from 31 through 34. Now, where the remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. If you try to offer for sin, you're you're trotting the the, uh, the uh, uh, Jesus Christ. This presents the conclusion of the entire discussion. Verse eighteen ends this whole discussion we've been having. Since Jesus brought perfection and brought complete forgiveness, sin, as far as God is concerned, cannot even be remembered. So it's great. What what, what further need is there for Levitical sacrifices? They're over. They're behind us. They're done. He's trying to tell his listeners to get out of that system or you're jeopardizing yourself before your king and you're going to expose yourself to risk of life and limb, as you'll see in a minute. And so with that statement, the author concludes the first major part of the book of Hebrews. So we've got that behind us. So now we go from that part to the second part of this chapter, which is from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, but includes um, a warning. Warning number four out of five. So let's just jump in as we go here. The practical application of the walk of the believer. The first major division, author of Hebrews, was from chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. That was all the theological stuff, okay? He showed the superiority, the preeminence of the Son to the three pillars of Judaism. Moses, angels, the Moses, the Levitical priests, okay? The second part of the book that we're now entering is going to deal with the practical application of the preeminence of the Son and the walk of the believer. And that will continue to the end of, this, of the book. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Whoa, wait a minute. Who, who, who? Who could enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. When? On Yom Kippur. After great ceremonial preparation. Do You have to understand the awe that they held that into You couldn't even enter the tabernacle unless you were a Levite. You couldn't enter the, the holy place unless you were a son of Aaron, and you couldn't enter the Holy of Holies unless you were the high priest. And you could only do that on Yom Kippur. You get the picture. He's saying, now, because of all this that you've had, brethren, he's putting himself in that same category. These are believers. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest, Holy of Holies, by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Is therefore, connects it to the past, of course, the whole 10 chapter previous. Brethren, he's putting himself in that uh, their fellow believers, have boldness to enter. They now have the privilege into the Holy of Holies in heaven through a Melchizedekan high priest, not a Levitical high priest. Mm-hmm. Different situation. He's a king and a priest. And uh, Jesus did not have the qualification to be a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. Different deal here. You and I are on the same plane of privilege as that of the Old Testament high priest. Wow, that's bizarre. Now we go back and read those again more carefully. I won't do it tonight. You do it yourself. Having therefore, brethren, hope boldest to enter into the holiest of holies by blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. A new way. This is based on the new covenant. And the, and uh, by the way, the word for new is a strange word, prosphatos. Which literally means new in the sense of having just been slaughtered or freshly killed. recent Meaning recently made. It's new in that sense. You lose that in the English. It shows up in the Greek. By a new and living way. See, he didn't die. The high priest died and somebody replaced him and so forth. No, we have a living, well, uh, living way. Based on the living fellowship with a living person. We have a living person there. And having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water there's a double reference here that will be familiar if you understand your old testament now understand the sovereign power of this high priest over the house of god this is where he's more like melchizedek not like levi levi was just the servant this guy is has sovereign power over the uh, 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 this high priest he's a high priest after the order of melchizedek melchizedek was a king and a priest remember We went through all that in previous chapters. This is the first of a series of let us phrases. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let us, Paul's in the same category, let us, draw near. That's a ritual term. You can't serve God until you've learned to worship Him. You want to understand how to worship Him, I encourage you to study that carefully. And my wife has several books that are very practical and helpful in that area, if you want to get some insights there. The Greek is here, the present imperative tense, in other words, continue drawing near would be a more precise translation. And uh, with what? A true heart. The word here in the Greek means of real devotion to have sincerity without superficiality. And I think that speaks that, thus. It speaks for itself. Having our hearts sprinkled—that's an Old Testament idiom, speaking of blood, right? This is Levitical imagery. The blood was sprinkled in that system. And by the way, the same word in the Septuagint is used for the induction of a priest into his office. He's sprinkled. The sprinkling of blood is a a form of authorizing and 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 sanctifying it. Okay. Now, the washed is a different concept. This is also a Levitical allusion to luo, to bathe. And this is referring to the cleansing as a result of having been regenerated. So you and I both need to be sprinkled. That's a once and for all atonement blood of Jesus Christ. We also need a daily bathing in the Word of God. That's the thought that's taken for granted behind this for, a, for someone that's f- familiar with the Old Testament styling here. Okay? And the same word here is used for the bathing of a priest, consecration purposes and all so forth. And, and, and so he would be washed or bathed. It was, it was analogous in a sense to our ritual baptism in a sense. The lettuce phrase, there are three of these lettuce phrases in the following three verses. Starting verse 19, that we should have the boldness, standard of the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he's consecrated for us through the veil. When he says veil the flesh, his flesh was torn, and the veil was torn. Lettuce, we now have a high priest that's over the house of God. And we have these these three lettuce phrases. And they're not for those guys. They're for us, not let us, you guys, let us, us guys, if I can butcher the grammar here a little, okay? The writer is including himself here. I want you to also notice an other emphasis here, I just want to get it clear, it's going to be emphasized as we go further, and that is the Holy Spirit's making clear that the believer should not be in isolation. You don't do this on your own, by yourself, all the time. You may do it, there's a place for that. You also get in a small group. And one of the dangers of small groups, they tend to be insular. No. You need to network between the groups. We should not forsake the assembling together. He's going to expressly command that shortly. Let us together, not individually. And there's three of these. One, to draw near in faith. That's our relationship toward God. Let's draw near in hope. That's for ourselves. We can't live without hope. And draw near in love, and that's for others. So it's our relationship. Three, let us toward God, to ourselves, and to others. Okay, verse 23. Let us hold fast to the profession of a faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. That's hope. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let us consider. Awkward. To perceive, observe, understand. To consider attentively. To make very careful investigation or careful study of what? One another. One another. Have you really studied your friends' needs? There's an invitation here for us to seriously investigate, do a careful study, consider attentively, one another. Why? To provoke unto love and good works. The way to show love to the brethren is by doing good works for them. Talks cheap, right? Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves, here it is expressly, often quoted verse, very important to understand. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Interesting emphasis here, this verse is often quoted, forsake not the assembling of ourselves. Notice what the emphasis is. When is this most important? As you see the day approaching. It shouldn't surprise us to see the real body of believers increasingly meeting in homes, businessmen after breakfast on Thursdays, whatever, finding small groups to get in the Word of God. We're finding them not they're they're they're, they're not they're assembling themselves together, and as they see a day approach, it'll increase. Not forsaking that, and uh, as the day approaches. It's the end times where we need to stick together, abandoning our divisions over non-essentials. And I love the quote that my wife has in her ministry lobby. It's a quote from Augustine that in in essentials, in essentials, unity; in non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, agape. That's attributed to Augustine, but I think it makes it it, it's, it's a, it says it all. We're going to include that in our handbook next time as our we have our statement of faith, but right, we'll say our philosophy approach. I think we'll call it something like that. As we see the day approaching, all of us here, I think, are familiar with our study of strategic trends, and we get a sense from that that we're getting in exciting times, right? And I, this is for the tape too. I'll, I'll reemphasize one more time: the most preposterous idea that I can imagine making publicly. And if you believe what I tell you now, you're going to flunk the course. I want you to challenge this statement. I'm going to suggest to you that you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in human history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. Now, to challenge that preposterous statement, you've got to do two things. You've got to find out what the Bible says, not what Chuck Mistler says or whoever. Find out for yourself what the Bible really says. That's not hard to do. It takes a little work, yes. second thing used to be hard is not today. Find out what's really going on. And you won't do that on the 10 o'clock news. You need to do a little homework. And there are resources around. That's one reason we have our proprietary database for all our students and all of that, to be able to do that quickly and with penetration and with relevance. But the more you know about what's going on, and the more you know your Bible, the more you realize there's a convergence. Not of one thing, of over a dozen that are converging on their near horizon. I'm not setting dates. I'm just saying it's still time. There's still opportunities to improve your own report card before the king returns. And so now the listeners of this epistle were approaching 70 AD, the judgment of Jerusalem where the temple was destroyed. Because of what? Because the national rejection of their Messiah. Jesus so identifies it in Luke 19 at the triumphal entry. He wept over Jerusalem because you didn't recognize this thy day, the day that was specifically uh, anticipated to the very day by Gabriel. Some five centuries earlier. Jesus warned them of its coming. That's in Luke 19. And it amplified in Luke 21. He told them specifically that this generation would not pass. And 38 years later, the same period of time of the generation in, in, in the wilderness, 38 years later, on 70 AD, it was destroyed. And over a million and a half men, women, and children were slaughtered by the Romans in that dreadful siege. The Christians that followed Jesus' instruction. Had retreated by his instruction to Pella over in Petraea. And according to Eusebius, the recording in the third century, not one Christian was killed out of that million and a half that were slaughtered because they followed the instructions. Okay, well, now we're going to approach the end of chapter 10, but we're going to be dealing with the fourth of five of these warnings we've been talking about. The intensity of each warning gets more serious. This one is about willful sin. It speaks of fiery judgment and sore punishment. This is getting, the language is getting tougher and tougher. The reference here, the context, is the writer's allusion to end time events. Understand that. What is, what happened, what's the next thing we're looking for? The harpazo, rapture as it's called, right? What's the next thing that happens after the rapture? Judgment seat of Christ. And that is really in the, the, the forefront of what's in the mind of the writer here. These subjects have been in his forefront from the beginning of this epistle all the way through. And the author includes himself when he speaks of we in all of these things. He says, If, if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Wow. The naive reader, out of context, that sounds like you can lose your salvation. That's not what the subject's all about. Four, because of what he just said, if you will. He's anticipating the apostasy that was just warned of, okay? If we sin willfully, that's a conditional, circumstantial participle in the present tense. It means a continuing action. It's actually the willfulies in front in the Greek, which is a way of making it even more intense. He's not dealing with one simple, isolated act of sin, but what he's talking about here is a specific sin that is habitually, deliberately committed, is the the thought here. He's abiding in that sin, if you will.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute,